very aware that good relationships with the White House staff, and certainly with Sarah Huckabee Sanders, the press secretary, are very important for everybody to do their jobs. Um, I think... And she's generally regarded, whether, whether you agree or disagree with her performance in front of the television cameras and you know, sometimes saying things spinning right. aggressively for the president, she's generally regarded as competent and capable and yes. thoughtful. And, and I can say from my own experience, um, I, get a, I hear a lot, I hear from her uh, a lot more than I would think. Um, and I think that sort of your mainstream every single day, you know, wire and, and big major newspapers hear from her a lot more. Uh, uh, even so, I, I, I'm, I have no complaints really um, uh, to speak of. Uh, the thing that I think is frustrating, and maybe this gets into a little bit of what it's like to cover the White House, um, is that you don't always know if what you're hearing from a source or from an even from not just from a source, you know, who's talking with you, uh, you know, sort of on background, giving you kind of the inside scoop, but even from a an official in an official capacity, from a uh, a uh, an official spokesman, you never know if that's actually going to be what happens in the end. Uh, let's say at a policy change or a personnel announcement. Um, that is what is I think very frustrating to a lot in the White House court. It's certainly frustrating for me to have to deal with. Um, and I, there's, a, there's a quote I had from a source um, early on when I first started covering the White House that I've kept hearing from this source uh, in, in, the, in the time since, and I just keep it in the back of my mind, which is uh, I was asking about some issue. I can't even remember what it was. I said, well, what's going to happen? What's the president going to do on this? In a normal White House, normal White House, a regular White House, pre-Trump White House, um, you have sort of this idea, well, here was the message that we worked on, here's the plan that we made. Um, this was not something that was sort of a breaking news thing that needed to be, that, that was sort of fast moving. This was sort of a policy rollout. Uh, this is what the White House's and the administration's policy is going to be on this issue. So what's the president going to do? And this person at a very high level said, uh, look, with this president, you never know. This is a guy who works with the president every single day on this particular issue. Um, and that is what is, makes it very hard because what I want to do, and I think what most White House reporters want to do, is just, is just tell that story. Right. What is going on? And when the people who ought to know better than anybody can't, can't say with certainty, and this was not a, I can't tell you about that, it's, it's real, I, you know, it, this was a throwing up of a hand saying, you know, the president's going to decide what the president's going to decide. Well, one of the interesting aspects of covering the White House, and I talked to a a fair number of White House sources as well, is um, the extent to which they take advantage of the old system um, or the existing system, not in the the extent to which they act sort of like an Obama White House, like a Bush White House. So, for instance, you hear the president criticizing um, people who are anonymous sources, and of course, the anonymous sources, one of the interesting things in talking to people about this is a lot of news consumers think that anonymous, when you talk about anonymous sources, that they're anonymous to the reporters. They're not anonymous to the reporters. We know exactly who we're talking to. We're ju- we just don't quote them or cite them by name. But the president is, is highly critical of the use of anonymous sources. But his administration, his White House, has background briefings on nearly a daily basis where they will provide a senior administration official in a helpful way and say, you know, these two officials are going to explain to you our thinking behind policy X, but you can't quote them. So at the same time that they're criticizing 
the use of anonymous sources. They're requiring the use of anonymous sources when we're uh, well, going to these the briefings. I mean, and the, the leaking the, the, the is the leaking, in, I mean, yes. probably under an unprecedented level. Well, you and, know, or, or, yeah. and can I say that yeah. the leaking, the anonymous sources, um, this comes from the top. Yeah, I the mean, it literally comes sometimes. from from <laughs> from the president of the United States, who frequently calls up friendly reporters. I think a couple weeks ago he he went after the New York Times' Maggie Haberman. Um, called her, called her, said he doesn't even know her. You know, he misspelled her, her name in the first tweet and deleted it and spelled it correctly. Um, he, he calls her all the time. Uh, he, he has her in the Oval Office. There's a, pic, there's a photo of, uh, of, of him with her. Um, he likes her. He, he, he gets in these sort of uh, back, some, back and forth with her, but she's very well sourced. And um, it's, it's, um, it's clear that one of, her, one of her sources, and she's not the only one, is the president himself. Well, and that, I think that's what really frustrates a lot of people in the media because the president has propagated this view, which apparently is believed by folks, that the media makes up these sources. Right. Um, when, it, when in fact it, it is the president himself, it's Jared Kushner, it was you know, Steve Bannon, it was Reince Priebus, it was you name, you put a name behind it, and they were out there on a regular basis feeding reporters information, often you know, in, in the internal fights. Yes. But the notion that these stories just come out of nowhere, um, especially when you're talking about somebody like a Maggie, Maggie Haberman, who is incredibly well-sourced, you know, but then this is part of the, you know, a, a deliberate strategy of delegitimizing information that is probably true. Um, and, I, and I think it's very much a conscious decision by this administration, therefore immu- you know, immunizing yourself against any of this reporting. So we have this two worlds, people who kind of know where this is coming from, and know that it's valid, and then a lot of people who take the, the president at face value and believe that it's all fiction. I would, I would push back yeah. just a little yeah. bit on your characterization of it, which, which is, and this is reflective of everything that I've learned as I've covered the White House now for the last you know, nearly 18 months, um, which is that there's no plan. That's the only thing we should, there, there's no sort of plan <laughs> okay, sir, to, right? to delegitimize. I think this is a reflective of the person at the top um, who the president often sort of changes his mind, um, often sort of forgets maybe what he said or willfully forgets what he said uh, the week before and sort of just whatever he's, the way, what, you know, what, however he's characterizing it now. So if he says, you know, I haven't talked to that person um, or, or, you know, that, this, is, this is false, this, this is fake, um, it's it just a sort of, I think it's almost a sort of an impulse um, for something that, you know, he doesn't like the story, he doesn't like where the story is taking him. Should we talk maybe about the, the Iran uh, thing do we have time to mention that or um, let let John yeah, yeah, chime in and then we'll go to questions but yeah, we yeah, can yeah, get yeah, back yeah. to it because it's a it's a good it illustrates the point. I was really. just going to point out that there while well, obviously a lot of these stories are true and they're based in fact they're yeah. well reported. Just right. last week we had a good example bad ones. of the media basically I think botching a story, running with claims, not verifying them first. And that was with uh, Ronnie Jackson, the White House uh, doctor who was nominated to be going to be the VA secretary. But wasn't that and because of the Senate report? It, yeah, but the, the, it yeah. was also the media's fault. So you had this Democratic Senator John Tester of Montana who interviewed anonymous sources who made all sorts of claims against uh, this, this physician. And we don't know whether they're true or not. Again, right. three people claiming the same thing doesn't mean it's true. And you have this problem, I think, in some mainstream networks where they'll just because two or three people say something, it doesn't mean it's true. You need to independently verify these facts. Furthermore, people have a right to face their accusers. I mean, typically these issues would be dealt with. Uh, I mean, the fact that he is that he is left, that he has, he was withdrawn, that he's no longer serving in the White House would suggest there is something there. But the fact that this story that the media just ran with it based on assertions, not 
verifiable there's facts. A huge, there's a huge yeah. double standard, yeah. partisan double standard there. I mean, back yeah. in, the, in the Bush administration days, when we were covering the various reports that came out of Congress about Iraq war intelligence and things like that, the Democratic-produced report, whether or not it had Republican buy-in, was treated as the report of the Senate Intelligence Committee, you know, that maybe they'd get one Republican, and it would be, this is what the Senate Intelligence Committee reported. Well, the House Intelligence Committee just put out a report on the Russia story, and it is described, I think accurately, I think this is actually the way to do it, as a partisan Republican report on this, you know, these events. But... The, the discrepancy in treatment of those two things is, I think, pretty... Yeah, the pretty torture report from the, the torture report, so-called, during the Obama administration, right. was a Democratic report. Exactly. So, yeah. Well, let's... Sorry, we've gone on too long. I could ask about 50 more questions, but let's get to some questions from you all. Any questions on fake news? On covering the swamp? I have a question about how conservative-leaning speakers um, allow themselves to be portrayed by the rest of the media. For uh, Trump's skeptical um, commentator, how do you avoid letting the, you, the panels on Sunday morning, they want to they show at least some show of balance. So they invite a, a Trump skeptic on. And if only the, to- the only topics on there are about Trump... It looks like e- even even the conservatives don't believe what the what what's going on with the Republican Party because the only topics they talk about are Trump when a Trump skeptic is on. So how do you avoid being a darling of the left, who's the go-to guy if you want to bash the Republicans, and how do you turn the conversation to what the GOP is doing that's good instead of letting them always talk about what's bad so they can get somebody on to agree with them? It's a great question. It is a great question. Charlie, you want to do it? I, I, let me, I'll, jump, I'll jump in. I'll jump in because it happens, it happens, okay, it happens to me, too. I mean, it's, it's interesting. I mean, there's a lot... When you put together a panel show like that, and I'm, I'm uh, under, under contract to Fox News, so I do most of my stuff on Fox, but I can occasionally do the Meet the Press or ABC's This Week or those... Those shows and the way that I handle it, it is a problem. And, and you're right. And it's you know Charlie and I joke about how funny it is when we go to these conferences and we talk about this stuff. And because we're sometimes or often critical of the president, people assume that we're quote on their side. And it's hilarious to me when I remind them that no, I I believe that we should severely limit government. I'm for crazy consumption-based taxing. I'm for I'm a military hawk. I'm all, what? I thought you were reasonable. Um, <laughs> but I try to work with the producers or the hosts of the show beforehand and say, you know, we get a sense of, usually you get a general idea of what you're talking about before you go on. Um, not details, but, you know, these are the topics we're likely to cover unless there's breaking news. And I will try to intervene at that point and say, well, interesting. I don't think we need seven topics on Donald Trump and his behavior. Why don't we talk about the Republican tax reform plan? And why don't we talk about this? There are other things that are worth discussing. And sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't. Yeah, it's, it, it's actually very hard on television because, of course, they have you know, limited time and they know what they want to talk about. They don't want to talk about what you want to talk about necessarily. Um, 
And, and when I was actually doing the show for WNYC with Public Radio, we devoted basically the entire program to saying, okay, this is what conservatives believe about these issues. And, and the response that I got that I, was the most gratifying, um, especially given the, the audience of Public Radio, was, wow, I'd never heard that conservative idea explained that way before. Okay, that's really interesting. I had never been exposed to that sort of a, a point of view. So it, it is possible to do. But... Look, there's no, there's no question about it, and I, I have no illusions about the reasonable uh, conservative thing. Um, I've told people that, um, do you remember when Donald Trump called into my radio show? It was uh, 8.30 on March 28th of uh, 2016, uh, 8, 8.35. I, I say that because at, at 8.25 that morning, um, I was a right-wing talk radio hack, um, who I'm not even sure that the local newspaper had ever even reported that I'd talked about Donald Trump before. So I was, you know, I, I knew what it was like to be treated like a conservative. By 11 o'clock that morning, I was one of the deepest and most important thinkers in American politics. <laughs> <laughs> because it's like, oh, the strange new respect, what a remarkable thing. But as, as Stephen points out, once they figure out you're actually a conservative, you can just see the disillusionment in their eyes. Well, and that's why the, the question really gets to the topic selection is where the bias comes right. in. Right. A lot of times. Yeah, we don't get to and do so, that. Yeah. You know, I think that's absolutely right. If the right. question is about tax reform, well, yeah, I'm for it. If it's Donald Trump met with these shady Russians, well, that was a bad idea. It's even Steve Bannon said. Yeah. So. I mean, I'll, I'll be on hardball probably today unless I get bumped. You know how that works. And they won't ask me about the successes of school choice in Wisconsin. Right. That, that's not the, that will not, will not be the topic. So. Well, and I would argue that, I mean, to take this sort of a level deeper, I would argue that that is really the main place that bias exists. It's just unseen for n- most news consumers. I think if you're, if you're a, an activist conservative or you're a movement conservative or a, a gung-ho Republican, you might notice these things. But, you know, what John was saying is absolutely right. It's, it's that they don't even bother to question premises that are different from their own thinking because it's like the fish living in water. You don't ask questions about the water. It just is. And that's, I think, the, the, the mistaken approach. Exactly real, real quickly, the thing that I think makes really exciting cable news television, which is hard because cable news tends to be the same thing every single day, is when you're in a position to question those premises and... Maybe a lot of producers don't like that, but I don't know, the shows that I go on, um, they seem to like it because it sort of shakes it shakes it shakes things up a little yeah. bit, and um, I think makes makes it a little more interesting. So I try to do that. Yeah. Yes, sir. Regarding the White House press dinners, uh, uh, you were talking about. There's two points I want to make. One was um, there's a show on Netflix called Trump: The American Dream. Uh, you might want to watch it. In it, it points out when President Trump decided to run was when, when at the White House president's um, dinner, Obama went after him over and over and over. And that night, apparently, he went home and ma- made the slogan, Make America Great Again, and decided this is the time to vote. But anyway, in general, for you, some of you who watched those dinners, do you think from the Bush time, where, you know, it was a lot more funnier and decent, it's gotten worse uh, in, the last, even in the early Obama years, it was re- reasonable? The last few years of Obama and now in the last two years, it seems like the jokes and things have been much more crude and um, much more uh, personal. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, if you go back and look at, again, I haven't been to, I, I think literally in 15 or 20 years I haven't been to one. And they, you know, they were fun when I was in my mid-20s, but 
um, it, it is a very swampy affair, and it's, it's always weird to see these political journalists, some of whom are esteemed political journalists, um, kissing up to either elected officials or you know, Hollywood people come, and they're just, there's just celebrity worship, and it's, the whole thing is, is unseemly. The difference, I think, between the, the Bush years, then the Obama eight years, and then the Trump years is in the Obama years, almost all of the jokes told by comedians were about Obama's critics. And now, and during the Bush administration, the jokes were more about, or if they were jokes about President Obama, they were the gentlest possible jokes that you could make about President Obama. Can I say, some, can I say something about comedy? Because I think uh, I'm not a comedian, but I really like comedy, stand-up comedy, and all these sort of things. And it seems that the trend has gone since the Bush years. I think like the 2000 election broke a lot of uh, comedians. They've always sort of been left-wing. But the success of Jon Stewart and sort of the Jon Stewart model, which um, was basically made a decision to be sort of partisan, even though he said, claimed it wasn't. I think it, you can see this in what what, what sort of are the hip comedy shows now that are sort of news and public affairs focused? They're all trying to be Jon Stewart, and it didn't. Mm-hmm. It meant that nobody was that. It, it, but they're not as funny as Jon Stewart, and I don't agree with Jon Stewart on a lot. But um, he was at least sort of uh, a very top tier comic, and um, I think that's a big problem too. There's, they're not that funny, and the material is so has has been made a huge shift toward sort of pointed political humor. Um, that I think misses or just pointed political commentary. I mean, that's like half of what commentary. Jim, Jim yeah, it's Kimmel not funny. Not. Right, it's not right. humor. It's it's just commentary. So it's sad. I don't like it. Yeah, we'll do one last question. Thank you. Uh, really quick question. So we saw today kind of the power in which media plays uh, with something like the VA in uh, Salt Lake City, uh, for example. My question um, being, um, do you think it's dangerous um, to have somebody like President Trump attack the media quite frequently um, and for conservatives to view him kind of as this moral paragon in doing so? Yes. <laughs> I, I, I think it makes everybody everything worse because he has such a big platform. And like all of the worst ins- instincts of the media, for instance, are—I mean, we said this earlier—they're only—they're—they're they're heightened. Um, They—they—they they sort of feel like, well, if—if if the president's going to go after us, maybe we really are his enemy, and they sort of adopt almost like a Stockholm syndrome about it. Sort of, well, we're gonna now we really have to stick it to him because he's a threat to the First Amendment. Well, I don't know. There's this thing called the internet. Um, there's there's really difficult. Uh, to, to threaten the First Amendment. Um, you can criticize the president all you want. People do it all the time. And so this, 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 you know, all these horror stories about how Trump is going to, you know, destroy the First Amendment, I think, um, I think he sort of brings that on by kind of, by kind of criticizing them in these outlandish ways. Not the First Amendment, but there is a threat to democracy if we no longer know what is true. I agree with that. That, that if, if, if truth is not, is, is not a value, then the justice system doesn't work and that we have nothing to talk about. And, uh, you know, one of the guests that I've interviewed that really helped me with this is Gary Kasparov, who is the former chess, world chess champion and Russian dissident, who explains that, you know, in an authoritarian regime, propaganda is not designed to convince you of one fact versus another. It's to break down your critical sensibilities completely so that you no longer know what is true 
or that you get to a point where you go, huh, I don't know, what is, what is, what is truth? Who should I believe I don't know? And, and, and that is one of those moments where, again, I don't want to overstate the threat to democracy, but there's an erosion there. Because in a democracy, you have to have something to talk about. You have to have something, some, some level of, of, of communication. And in this world where no one knows what's true, no one can be trusted, um, th- that, that does erode. And, you know, authoritarianism... You know, it doesn't have to be, you know, fascism. It could be the illiberal authoritarianism of a place like Hungary. And, and experts will say that this is one of the marks, that people have no credible source of information. They doubt everything. Now, it's good to be skeptical, but if you doubt everything, then, of course, you have the authoritarian leader who gets to define what's true and what's not true. So that may be slightly overstating what we're doing. I agree with that. Um, we're going to take we're going to take another uh, break. About ten forty five, we'll start up again, and we will be talking about twenty eighteen midterms, Democrats, future of conservatism, what have you. And Charlie is going to take off. Thank you very much for coming and, and doing this, Charlie. Appreciate Thank it. You. Thank 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 you.